The Mortification of the Flesh by Christopher Love Chapter 2 False Notions Regarding Mortification of Sin Dispelled I now come to address the second part of our text. Quote, But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Close quote. Mortifying the deeds of the body cannot be understood to include the religious deeds of the body, for they are to be cherished, nor of the natural deeds of the body, such as eating or drinking. Consider further 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. But by it is meant the sinful actions that are done by the body, which arise from the temptations and suggestions of Satan or the corrupt dictates of our own sinful natures. If ye mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Beloved, you see here that the Lord bids us to walk in ways which are antithetical to the judgments of flesh and blood. He tells us to mourn and sow in tears, so that we might reap in joy. Psalm 126, verses 5 through 6. He bids us die, and tells us this is the way to live. Nothing can be more contrary to the natural inclinations of flesh and blood, and yet there is no other way to live but this. We must first die to sin and the world before we can live a life of grace. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, Romans chapter 6 verses 11 through 14. And we must die a natural death before we can come to live a life of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 57. There are two observations that I shall draw from this latter part of the text. Doctrine number two. Mortification of corruption is a necessary qualification required in every person that shall obtain salvation. If ye mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And from the addition of the phrase, through the Spirit, observe. Doctrine number three. Though a man can commit sin by his own strength, yet he cannot mortify sin without the strength of the Holy Spirit. And these are the two points I intend to focus upon from this latter part of the text. I shall expand upon them in the following chapters, but at this time I will only lay down some introductory principles on this needful doctrine of mortification and then give some useful and necessary implications. Later, I will show you the nature and characteristics of mortification, the false mistakes made about it, 
the fears of godly people who think they are not mortified when in reality they are, and so forth. For now, I shall only begin with some introductory principles which permit us to have a clearer understanding of the first doctrine, that mortification of corruption is a necessary qualification which is required in every person who would attain to salvation. Nine False Marks of Mortification To begin, I will lay down eight or nine cautionary maxims to those that are unmortified. Number one, do not count a sin that has been prevented from coming to fruition in the act as real mortification of that sin. Restraining grace is not mortifying grace. In Genesis chapter 20 verse 6, God says to Abimelech, quote, I withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Close quote. He had sin restrained, but not mortified. As a lion in a cage is a lion still, though he cannot go about to devour his prey. So, though men are restrained from acting out the sins unto which they are inclined, yet the restraint from that sin is not to be mistaken for its mortification. A man may curb and restrain his lusts for a while, keeping them from coming forth into the act, without the power of mortifying grace. A man may bridle a lust for many years without ever mortifying it. Therefore, I say, do not consider a sin that has merely been restrained to be mortified. Number two, a listlessness toward committing a certain sin is not an infallible demonstration that the sin is mortified. Do not consider a present indifference toward some sins to be a true saving mortification of them. Well, this is a great mistake that many men run into. Because they have no desire to commit some sins which their education makes them loathe, Therefore, they think they have a work of mortification and sanctification wrought within them. Furthermore, there are many external causes that may make a man disinclined toward some sins, things such as sickness, old age, horror of conscience, education, or a man's own natural temperament. Letter A. A man may lack his typical enthusiasm for committing a sin because he is ill. Though in former times he was a drunkard or an adulterer, yet because he has thereby distempered himself and impaired his health, he no longer has the desire or ability to continue committing those sins. Such listlessness towards sin is caused by the sickbed 
not mortifying grace. Letter B. An inability to sin may be caused by old age, wherein a man's strength is wasted and decayed, and thus he is unable to act out those sins of adultery, drunkenness, and so forth, which he formerly took pleasure in committing. Letter C. A reluctance to sin may arise from the terror of conscience. When God casts the flashes of hell fire in the face of a man, well, it seizes upon him, making him abstain from sinning for some period of time while the horror lies upon him. As a thunderstorm sours the beer in our cellars, so when God thunders upon the conscience, it will sour and embitter sin to a man, so that he has no desire to pursue it for a time. Yet this is not the work of mortifying grace upon the heart, but rather the horror of conscience that seizes, afflicts, and terrifies the man, making him listless in his pursuit of that sin. Letter D. A reluctance to sin may flow forth from a good education. A man's moral principles may restrain him from committing many gross and scandalous sins. Letter E. Some men are disinclined to certain sins because of their natural temperament. Although every man has the potential for all sin within him, Yet there are some sins to which, by nature, he is more inclined than others, according to his complexion and constitution. A man that is of a choleric disposition is most prone to anger, and a man of sanguine disposition is most prone to sexual impurity, and so forth. And yet, there are many sins that a man's natural temperament makes him despise. For example, Luther tells us that in all his lifetime he was never troubled with covetousness. Now, this did not proceed from mortifying grace, but from the natural temperament of his body. It was a gift of nature given to him by God's common grace not a gift of redeemed, mortifying grace. Permit me to illustrate this to you by a familiar allegory. Suppose that you put a dog and a sheep together, and cast meat before the sheep, and grass before the dog. Neither of them will eat what is in front of them. Well, the sheep will not eat meat, and the dog will not eat grass. And this arises from the natural temperament of the creatures. Well, the same is true here. Men's natural temperaments incline them towards some sins and away from others. And thus, an avoidance of the latter sins is not to be credited to the power of mortifying grace. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, beloved, you are not to ascribe to mortifying grace, that which is merely the result of a violent sickness, old age, terrors of conscience, education, or a man's natural temperament and constitution.
Number three, true mortification includes inward and secret sins as well as outward and scandalous sins. Not only are the lusts of the flesh to be mortified, but also the thoughts of the mind. Not only are the deeds of the body to be subdued, but also the desires of the heart, the corruptions of the inward man. Mortification must include a subjugation of vicious affections and base actions, as the Apostle tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, quote, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, close quote, and so forth. Perhaps you do not think that these two are both one. Fornication is the sin in the act, sin that has come to bear its evil fruit in the act while uncleanness is the same sin in the seed form of the thoughts and affections. Consider further Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Paul bids them to mortify fornication, that is, uncleanness in the act. Yet he does not stop there but tells them that they must also subdue their sinful thoughts and desires toward that sin. And thus, true mortification includes subduing the very first motions and secret propensities toward any sin that you find in your heart. Number four, let mortification be especially directed to strike at those sins that are your master sins, those sins which are most prevalent and predominant in your heart, the sins that you have most prayed against and are least able to resist, the sins that most strongly assault you and most easily beset you and overpower you. Thus says David in Psalm 18, verse 23, quote, I have kept myself from mine iniquity, close quote, and that is to say, from my special sins, my constitution sins, my bosom iniquities. Well, in this case, I might give you the same advice that the king of Syria gave to his captains in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 31, when he said, quote, Fight neither with small nor great, but only with the king of Israel, close quote. And so may I say unto you, Fight not so much against any sin as you do against your beloved, darling, constitutional sins, that is, the sins that most easily beset you and prevail over you. Number five, do not think that you will accomplish this great work of mortification 
by a broad and superficial fight against your sins. Instead, you must overcome each sin individually. If you take your sins and corruptions all together in one lump, you'll never be able to break and mortify them. When a whole bunch of sticks is bound together, well, even the strongest man in the world will not be able to break it. But if the bundle is taken apart, any man may break them all one by one with ease. And the same is true of your sins. If you take the whole of your sins apart and look at each sin individually, you will overcome and mortify them all. If you shoot at a random, you're never going to hit the mark. And so also, if you look at your sins in general, that is altogether in a lump, you're never going to be able to mortify them. It is as though a man were called upon to carry a large tree a good distance from his house. The way to do it is not to haul and drag the, the whole tree, for this would be impossible. But instead, he must cut the tree into smaller pieces, and then he may easily do it. And yet, this is how many men go about subduing and beating down sin in their hearts. They think to do it all at once, and yet this is not the way. You must labor to take sin in pieces, to view each type of sin individually, breaking and conquering them one by one, and in this manner you will be able to overcome even the strongest of them. Number six, let your mortification extend not only to particular acts of sin, but to the whole bulk and body of sin. It is a great fault amongst many Christians that if they are troubled with outbursts of anger, they go about mortifying them. Or if with unclean and sinful thoughts, they endeavor to subdue them. We all do it. But in the meantime, leave the whole body of sin unmortified. Whereas, whenever you go about the business of mortifying any one particular lust, you should also labor to bewail the whole body of sin that is within you, and seek to strike at the very root of sin. If a man would prevent a tree from growing, he must not only lop off the branches, or that will not do, but he must pull it up by the root. In the same way, you may cut off one sin after another and cause those branches to wither. But if you do not pull up sin by the root, your cutting off of the branches will only make your corruptions rage all the more. If not the same sins, then others. And it may be that Worse sins than the former will grow up in their place. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about coughing. When David came to bewail his sin of adultery, 
he likewise laments his very sinful nature. Quote, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Close quote. Psalm 51 verse 5. Well, this illustrates that when we go about the business of mortifying any one particular sin, we must likewise bewail and labor to bring under the whole body of sin. Number seven. When you set upon the work of mortification, go about it in the strength of Christ and not in your own strength. As I told you previously, you may commit sin by your own strength, but you cannot mortify sin by your own strength. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Only an arrow fetched from the quiver of the Lord Jesus Christ can slay your lusts. Therefore, do not depend upon your own reason, understanding, or knowledge in carrying out this great work of mortification. For although you may be able to discover your sin and the danger you are in because of it, yet you are not able to subdue that sin by your own strength. Quote, We are kept by the power of God unto salvation. Close quote. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5. Do not battle with sin in the confidence of your own strength, for you are but as a feather before a whirlwind. You do not have the power on your own to resist the weakest temptation or subdue the least corruption. Instead, do as David did when he was to contend with Goliath, a great and mighty giant, and himself but a poor young lad. And what did David do? Well, he says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, quote, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come against thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, and in the power of his might. Close quote. So now, if you go out against your sins and unruly lusts in the power of God's might, well, this is the only way to overcome and subdue them. Number eight, take heed of allowing sin to linger within your heart without control, but instead labor to mortify it at its very first appearance. When your nature first begins to draw near to a sin, strive to root it out immediately. For it is easier to keep sin out of our souls than it is to drive sin out once it has entrenched itself in our hearts. Sin is like a snake. If he can just get his head into a place, he will soon wind in his whole body. In this way, 
if we cherish and give entertainment to the first motions and inclinations of a sin, it will soon insinuate itself within us. Sin is like the overflowing of a mighty river. Once the water has breached its banks, if it is not quickly stopped, it will soon overflow the whole meadow. And thus, if we leave sin alone when it first arises within us, it will quickly overrun the whole man. <coughs> Number nine. Finally, when you have, through the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, mortified one sin or resisted a temptation, do not sit down and think that your work is done, but instead, expect another conflict. Your corruption will come upon you again. The devil will still be plotting against you, sending one temptation after another to foil you if he can, and God, in his great wisdom, permits him to do this in order to humble us and to teach us to see what continual cause we have for standing guard and keeping a constant watch over our hearts. And that, for as long as we live, we shall stand in need of mortifying grace. Like the branches of a tree, though you lop them off, yet they will spring out again. So when you have mortified one corruption, another will spring forth. And this goes on ad nauseum. Though you have cut off one lust today, yet another may spring up tomorrow or even the same day. If you have mortified pride today, then anger, covetousness, worldly-mindedness, or the like may spring up tomorrow, or even the same day. And by this, we see the need for constant vigilance. We must stand guard upon the watchtower, observing these deceitful hearts of ours, always seeing our need for mortifying grace so that we may subdue our corruptions. Seven Comforts to Those with Mortified Hearts And thus I have finished giving you these nine rules by way of caution concerning this doctrine of mortification all of which shall be very useful, as I intend to further expound upon this subject. Yet perhaps I have come near to your heart and touched your soul to the quick. Perhaps some poor humble soul that has the power of mortifying grace working in his heart is in despair because he finds his corruptions to be so stirring and active in him that he is not able to master them. Therefore, follow me in your thoughts a little as I provide seven comfortable considerations. 
Number one, the rising and stirring of corruptions in your heart may still be consistent with true mortification. The very lust that is mortified may yet make a great deal of stirring and rising in the soul. The consideration of this should provide a great deal of comfort to many poor souls. In Romans chapter 7 verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, quote, When the commandment came, sin revived, close quote. And yet Paul was a mortified man, 20 years or more into this state of regeneration, a sanctified man. And in this case, the godly man is likened unto a sick man with a violent fever. Though the man may be very near death, yet the strength of the disease is so powerful that it makes him toss and tumble in such a way that two or three men can scarcely hold him down in his bed. Now this cannot be imputed to the strength of the man, but to the strength of the disease that causes him to do this. And the same is true in many a poor soul. Sin may be very near its death and mortification. And like a chicken with his head cut off, the body still stirs and rages more violently than ever. And this does not proceed from the weakness of the man's ability to resist sin, but rather from the strength of Satan's temptations. Many birds, after their heads are pulled off, they flutter more strongly than ever before. So also, a sin may keep stirring within your soul even after you have dealt it a mortal wound, in effect cutting off its head. But, because I know there may be a great deal of misuse of this comfortable consideration, let me tell you, beloved, that there are only two cases in which the stirring and working of corruptions in your soul gives evidence of a mortified heart. Letter A. When corruptions stir within you, so also do your humiliation, resolution, and striving against these sins. When the suggestions and solicitations of Satan increase, well, so also do your hearty prayers unto God, and resolutions against those sins increase. When you cannot be quiet in the presence of sin, and sin cannot be quiet within you, in this case, the stirrings of corruption are not evidence of an unmortified heart, but rather that sin has already been dealt its death blow. <coughs> Letter B. The stirrings of corruptions in your heart, though they are very violent, Yet they do not argue that your heart is unmortified if after such turbulent stirrings and strugglings of sin in your heart, these corruptions grow weaker and weaker. Sin in a godly man is much like a person with a febrile illness 
that distempers the brain, causing a violent fit of seizures. It makes him so wild and unrestrained that others are astounded at seeing such strength in a poor, lean, and sickly man. But when the convulsion is over and the strength of the disease has passed, the poor man has become a great deal more faint, feeble, and weak by his former struggle. Now, if this is true of you, that the thrashing of sin becomes the weakening of sin, that, there, that when corruptions have stirred in you, you have risen up against them and overcome them so that you find their strength weakened and decayed, this is very good evidence and a strong argument for the work of mortifying grace in your heart. Number two, remember that mortification of any sin or of sin in any regenerate man does not reach so far as the utter abolition and extirpation of sin from the soul. Never expect that it should extend this far. Sin in the soul is like, well, some cases of leprosy. If this plague had spread throughout the walls of the house, and it could not be removed by scraping or washing, then the house must be pulled down and demolished. Leviticus chapter 14, verses 43 through 45. And so too, the leprosy of sin will cling to you as long as you live in this world, until this body of yours is dissolved. I compare sin in the soul to the tree you read of in Daniel chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, whose branches were cut off, but the stump and its roots remained. You may lop off the branches of sin, but you can never quite eradicate and pluck it up by the roots. Despite your best efforts, Sin will vex and unsettle you for as long as you live in this world. Therefore, I say, do not expect that mortification should extend so far as to the total abolition and utter extirpation of sin. Number three, take this for your comfort that though God never intended for mortification to reach so far as the utter destruction of sin, yet God does intend for it to take away all of the dominion and reigning power of sin. It shall be in your soul like those beasts spoken of in Daniel chapter 7 verse 12, where it is said, quote, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Close quote. Thus, God will permit sin to live within you for a season, but not to reign over you, 
as is promised in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, quote, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace, close quote. Ye, uh, you are neither under the rigor of the law, nor under the power of the law, and therefore sin shall not have dominion over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. You are not under sin as a law, but under the command and law of grace. The apostle describes sin with the label of law. For he says, quote, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, close quote. Romans chapter 7, verse 23. Though its life and being linger for a short season, sin shall not have dominion over you. Number four. Take this for your comfort, that a soul's sincere endeavor to expel and mortify sin is accepted by God as real mortification. I'm going to read that again. Take this for your comfort, that a soul's sincere endeavor to expel and mortify sin is accepted by God as real mortification. Isn't that wonderful news? If the Lord sees that you are standing up to fight against your lusts, not some feigned, I don't like you, get away from me, but really fighting it, that you grapple with every sin, resist every temptation and stand guard with your weapons in your hand God looks upon this principle of resistance as though it were a perfect resistance in Leviticus 11 we read that it was a part of the ceremonial law that if any unclean thing fell into a vessel of water well, both the water and the vessel were unclean. But if it fell into a spring or fountain of water, the spring or fountain was not made unclean. Interpreters give a reason for it. Because if any unclean thing fell into a vessel of water, it had no ability to purge and cleanse itself, and therefore must remain unclean. But if any unclean thing fell into a spring or fountain, it would not be defiled, because it is, in, it is continually in motion, and cleanses itself from any filthiness that falls into it. Well, the same is true with us. If you have no principle that stirs you up to resist and withstand your corruption, to cleanse and root sin out of your heart, then you are unclean. But if when sin falls upon you, you, by a holy zeal and continual striving against sin, labor from a principle of grace within to cleanse, 
purge and free yourself from those sins, in this case, you are not to be pronounced an unclean and unmortified man. Oh, what unspeakable comfort this affords us! That resisting and fighting against sin are looked upon by God as a total subduing and overcoming of it. Number five. Another comfortable consideration is this. To consider that we have God's promise and Christ's power to help us accomplish this great work of mortification. Beloved, no mother's child who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ encounters and fights with the devil alone or bears his own burdens alone. Every one of us that is in Christ has God's promise and Christ's power to guide and assist us in mortifying every sin. Thus it is easily seen in the scripture that in some places God commands us to mortify sin, such as in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. While in other places, God has promised to do it himself on our behalf. As in Micah chapter 7 verse 19, he will subdue our iniquities for us. As God commands his children to obey him, so also does he convey the power and ability necessary for doing what he commands. God bids his people to mortify sin. Alas, says the poor soul, I am not able to grapple with my corruptions, nor can I keep them subjugated. Why then, says God, or why then, says God, I will help you by subduing and mortifying sin for you. Oh, what a gracious captain we fight under, one who does our work for us, yet commends us for a job well done, one that fights our battles for us, and yet gives us the glory of his victory. And oh, what a comfort this is, that we have such a good God, one who fights for us, subduing our iniquities on our behalf. Number six. Another consideration is this, that sin and corruption may be more boisterous and stirred up after a man is regenerate than before his conversion. And this was true of Paul, for he says, quote, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Close quote. Romans chapter 7, verse 9. Which is to say, 
Before I was converted, I was alive. No sin troubled me at all. I considered myself to be in a very good and happy condition, that I was a blameless man and a mortified man. But when the commandment came, sin revived. That is to say, when the command of God came, meaning the Ten Commandments, it set limits on my very thoughts. I was told that I must not have sinful or covetous thoughts. And if I did, this sin by itself would be enough to condemn me. Though I were blameless with regard to all the other commandments, thus, when this commandment came, then sin revived, and I died. Which is to say, I saw myself in a lost and undone condition, and without a Savior. Now in the same way, these stirrings of sin after conversion do not argue that there is more sin in the soul than there was before conversion, but only that it is more revealed and more obvious to us, so that we perceive ourselves as being more sinful than we did previously. You did not have so quick an eye we did not have so quick an eye to discern sin before as we now have. Permit me to illustrate this to you with a similitude. Suppose you're tapping your finger against a stool, a chair, or some such thing, and that you suddenly cut it. Now the least touch after your finger has been cut will make it hurt. Though, before, you might have tapped it again and again and felt no pain. Now, everything that touches it troubles you. Well, the same is true of a man after conversion. The poor man cries out, Lord, what is wrong with me? For this sin, that sin, and every other sin now troubles me. This was not the case with me before. Well, the reason is this. Your conscience was not so tender before conversion as it is now. And you could not discern smaller and lesser sins as you now can. For now, the Lord Jesus Christ shines forth his bright, illuminating beams of light upon your soul, revealing the secret sins that lie lurking there. Number seven. Lastly, take this for your comfort, that in your endeavors to mortify sin, you may die by yielding to sin, but you shall never die by opposing and resisting sin. It is not good to cry for quarter at sin's hands. You can never die by grappling with sin, though you may assuredly die by yielding to sin. Those sins that you have prayed against, 
labored against and fought against shall never damn you. But if, like a faint-hearted soldier, you run away and surrender to Satan's temptations and assaults, then you are undone. You may be damned for yielding to sin, but you shall never be damned for fighting against sin. Therefore, strive and plead earnestly with God to give you the power of mortifying grace in your heart so that you may be able to mortify and subdue sin, bringing the flesh under the sovereign rule of the Spirit. And with this, I have given you in all 16 cautionary rules as an introduction to this great doctrine of mortification. And now for discussion or personal reflection. Number one, list some ways that Christians may be falsely convinced that their sins are mortified when indeed they are not. In what ways have you been deceived by any of these in the past? Number two, what good advice does the author give with regard to mortification of sin in this chapter? Number three, what comforts does the author provide for the believer who may be discouraged in his work of mortifying sin? Well, which is most precious to you? And explain your answer. Now remember, beloved, uh, the book, The Mortification of the Flesh by Christopher Love, is available for purchase. Dr. Mick prices these really, really inexpensively. Uh, you can uh, get more information on that from his website, which is www.digitalpuritan.net. This is the end of chapter two.